14. Well, I want to invite you now to open up your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel 19. And as you turn there, uh, you probably have already seen uh, we're having the Lord's Supper today. And so our time of response, the way we're going to respond to God's Word together is by coming to the Lord's table together. Uh, the Lord's table is here for those who are professing followers of Jesus Christ. So if you've placed your trust in the gospel, if you've repented and put your faith in Jesus and made a public profession of that faith, uh, then we invite you to come to the table with us. If you've not done that yet, we would invite you to observe uh, as we come to the table at the end of our service today. So that'll be how we conclude our service. We're going to begin our time in the Word now by looking at 2 Samuel 19. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we're at a point in 2 Samuel where uh, the people of Israel have been in a civil war. And that civil war has been between those who have uh, allied themselves with David and those who have come alongside his son Absalom. Uh, Absalom had sought to overthrow his father David and overthrow the throne. And as a result, this civil war ensues. And now the war is over. Uh, Absalom's been defeated. Absalom is dead. Uh, but there is still unrest among the people. And so while David has won the war, what we see in this chapter is now his challenge before him is to win the peace. And so we're going to look at 2 Samuel 19. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at two sections of this chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 8 and go through verse 30 and then pick back up in verses 41 through 43. And out of reverence for God's Word, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand uh, as I read today's passage for us. The second Samuel 19, we'll pick up there uh, towards the latter part of verse 8. And this is what God's Word says. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hands of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimea, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the, the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimea, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, 
Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the King left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel on this day? For I do not know that or for do I not know that I am king over this day over Israel. And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant, deceive me. Your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. Your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide, divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. And then if you'll look to verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. You would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, God, during this time as we consider that the return of David to Jerusalem, that you might help us to see an even greater return. A return that is coming one day for us. The return of our King Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help us during this time in the word to grow in our hope that we have in the return of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We read Paul's words in Romans where he writes, For what was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We're told by Paul that when we go back to the Old Testament, when we consider what is written down in the Old Testament, we're to endure, we're to be encouraged, we're to have hope. 
And yet what we find as we've walked through First and Second Samuel together is that our hope cannot rest in David. Our hope can't rest in Saul. Our hope can't rest in Samuel because all of these men fall short. And as we've considered this study, as we've walked chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we've had a, a front row seat to their shortcomings. We've seen their sin, especially the sin of David. We've seen the great consequence of his sin that still continues through 2 Samuel in our study. We've seen how these men fall short. So how do we reconcile Paul's words in Romans with this passage? How, how do we come to 2 Samuel 19 and walk away with hope when this is a chapter among many chapters about fallen men doing fallen things. About men who even when they do the right thing seem to have the wrong motives. How, how does that give us hope? Well, I would challenge you this morning that we find hope in 2 Samuel 19, the same place that we find hope in every chapter of the Scripture, and that's in Jesus Christ. All of these shortcomings, all these men who have gone before, all these who have sinned and we see the consequence of their sin, they're all reminders to us that our hope can't rest in them, that our hope must rest in Jesus. And so as we walk through this chapter today, we're reminded of the need we have to hope in Christ because we come to 2 Samuel 19 and we see it's a chapter about the return of King David. It's a chapter about David now returning to the throne in Jerusalem, returning to reign and to rule. And for all his shortcomings, for all his sin, for all the consequences of his sin, we're reminded to look ahead. We're reminded of that covenant that God made with David that one day a descendant would come from David who would sit on a throne, who would have no shortcomings, who would have no sin who wouldn't fail as we see David fail, but one who would in perfection reign for all eternity. As we look to the return of David to Jerusalem, we're reminded to look to the return of King Jesus. We're reminded this morning of the hope that we have when we consider that Christ our King is coming again. And so friend, I hope you will be encouraged as we walk through this word today. I, I hope that this encouragement will follow you through in the days to come. I hope that when you turn on the news and you see the desperate situation of our world around us, I hope that when you hear story after story of just evil and wickedness and sin, I hope that when you see turmoil that's all around us, that your hope will rest in the day when Jesus is coming and the Scripture says He will make all things new. He will make all things right. And so that is where our hope should be. And that will be our focus as we walk through this passage today. We're reminded of this in Titus 2.13 where we read that we are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so how are we reminded of that hope? Well, first, in this passage, we're reminded of that hope because we are reminded that the returning king brings peace. The first point there in your notes. Number one, the returning king brings peace. Now this is what David attempts to do. He's attempting to bring peace to the kingdom. As I've already mentioned, he, he's won the war. Now the challenge is to win the peace. 
And historically, that often doesn't go well. Historically, there are people who can win wars but can't win peace. There's people who can win the peace but can't win wars. And so we see that challenge that sits before David because now that the war has been won, we see a divided kingdom in chaos. And remember, this was no small contingency that had aligned themselves with David or aligned themselves with Absalom. That there's great division in the kingdom. 20,000 men have just died in a battle. Brother against brother. And now that David has won that battle, well, everything doesn't just go back to this peaceful, united nation. No, there is chaos in the kingdom. There is division among Israel's tribes. And you read about that division there as we look at verses 8 through 10. That there's murmuring, there's mumbling, there's complaining. Well, yeah, David, he, he battled against the Philistines and he was our king, but then he ran from Absalom, so we declared Absalom to be king, and now Absalom's dead, and who's going to be our king? Well, you come to this point where God's people are, more, are, are moaning and complaining and grumbling about the need for a king. It seems we've come full circle. <laughs> because as we started our study in 1 Samuel, what were the people doing? They were mumbling and they were complaining and they were looking around them. And they say, well, we need a king like everybody else. And they were warned by God that if they went that direction, if they rejected God as their supreme authority and king, if they demanded to have an earthly king, it would not go well. And look where they end up. Right in the place God said they would be. And it doesn't seem they've learned much. Because here they are complaining. And yet now, they're not even crying out to God for a king. They're just complaining to one another. Well, these complaints make their way to David. And so David plans his return to Jerusalem. He sends words to the elders of Judah that uh, they need to take charge in bringing him back to Jerusalem. He, he then comes up with this, this strategy for how he's going to win over those who might still be opposed to them. And so as you walk through the text here, some things might seem uh, a bit off to you. For example, David doesn't take Joab, the commander of his army, and say, okay, now you're going to be the commander of the army Overall again, no, he, he kind of pushes him to the side and makes Amasa the commander of the army. And the reason that I may be concerning is because Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. And so he is basically saying to those who followed his enemy and to the commander who took charge over the army of his enemy, those who were his enemies, he's saying, I want you now to be in charge of my army. Now, this might seem like a foolish step for David, but it's actually very strategic. Because as we've already seen, Joab was a ruthless commander. And the people who had opposed David, probably at this point, were a bit concerned that now Joab's going to go on a witch hunt. <laughs> and now he's going to hunt us down, us who aligned ourselves with Absalom. And by David then putting Joab to the side, and putting Amasa as the commander over them, well, this kind of invites them to be at peace with David. Now, there's probably other reasons for this. If you were with us last week, we saw that Joab didn't follow David's instructions, and Joab actually put to death Absalom, David's son, even though David told him not to. And we'll find that that, that, that really stays with David. In fact, on David's deathbed, he makes his son Solomon pledge to him and promise to him that he's going to kill Joab. 
And so there's something deep-seated here in David's heart that is turned against Joab. But this decision to now elevate Amasa as commander over his military, this seems to be very strategic because David is trying to orchestrate a peace with the people that he has conquered. And it works. We read in verse 14, he, he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. And so he's won them over. They, they invite him to come back to Jerusalem, to come back to the throne. And so his, his plan for peace seems to have worked, except it doesn't. <laughs> and by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we'll, we'll see this clearly, that, that David was seeking to manipulate and to, to strategize this way to bring peace, but ultimately his plan fails. And this kingdom in chaos continues to be a kingdom that is divided. And so how does that give us hope? <laughs> well, it gives us hope, friends, because when we look ahead to our king, to King Jesus, when we look ahead to the return of Jesus, we're reminded that while David's plans and strategies fail, that Jesus is never will. And we're reminded as we look at David and his failing attempts at peace that when Jesus comes, he will bring true and lasting peace. Jesus himself spoke of this in John 14, 27 when he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, this peace that Jesus offers, it rests on a promise. Jesus even here compares this peace to, to worldly peace, which is so temporal and so fading. When we look around the world today, we look around at conflicts in the world today, and things are as they have always been. There are wars and rumors of wars. There are attempts at peace. There may be negotiations of peace, but when those negotiations are made and settled, they're never truly settled, are they? Because they depend on a handshake. They depend on a, a commitment between one side and another. And so often those handshakes and commitments, they don't hold up. So often that peace is not lasting. And so from one generation to the next, perhaps one group, one country will be at peace here and then not at peace here. The world does not offer us a lasting peace. But Jesus does. Because the peace that Christ offers us rest in a promise, the promise of the gospel. And it is through the gospel of Jesus that we find true peace. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this peace that we can have with God through Jesus, this, this is not a negotiated peace. That there's not some strategy that's manipulated to bring this peace. No, we can be at peace with God because Jesus has made a way for us. I'll remind you, friends, that the Scripture tells us that, that we're not born at peace with God. The Scripture reminds us that we're born actually enemies of God. That we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. That the wages of our sin is death. That, that, that from birth... There's, there's enmity between us and God. And, and we are rightfully deserving the wrath of God for our sin. We're, we're not at peace with God. But Jesus makes that peace because the Scripture says that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, he lived a perfect life, fully God, fully man. He went to the cross and He died in our place so that we could then be at peace with God. 
That, that's the only way you can have peace with God. You're not going to have peace with God out of any earned merit on your behalf. You're not going to have peace with God through vows and commitments and strategies. You're not going to come to peace with God by this week deciding, well, I'll just stop doing this and stop doing this. I'm not going to look at this anymore. I'm not going to go to these websites anymore. I'm going to give money to this and I'm going to serve here and volunteer here. And these things will bring me peace. The problem is they don't. And you're going to fail just like David did in all his strategy and all his attempts. God's Word tells us the only way we can be at peace with God is to repent of our sin and put our full trust and hope in Jesus Christ. It is only through hoping in Jesus, believing in the Gospel, that we can have true and lasting peace. And we're reminded of the day when Christ returns that He will make all things new and that all will be right. And then we hope for that day. 2 Samuel 19 reminds us we, we can have hope because Jesus brings lasting peace. We're also reminded that we can have hope today. Point two there in your outline because the returning king offers mercy and grace. The returning king offers mercy and grace. So David, in his attempt to bring peace, he, he's now coming back to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling this road, retracing the steps. You remember that road of suffering that led him away from Jerusalem? Now he's basically going right back the same path to Jerusalem. And as he's going back and crossing the Jordan, and then now he's having people come out to him before he even gets back to Jerusalem. And, and they too want peace because they realize now, well, David's back and David's king and David rules and I better make things right with him so things go okay with me. The first one we see here is Shimea. Now, you may recall Shimea from chapter 16. He's, he's a hard fellow to forget. You remember David and his men, they were, they were fleeing Jerusalem. This, this was a low point for David. And at this lowest of all lows, as he is having to flee the throne, being pursued by his own son, as he is weak and as he is weary, as he's taking account of who's going to follow him and who's not going to follow him, along comes Shimei and he starts cursing David and throwing stones at David. And he doesn't just do this once from a distance. The picture is he just keeps following David and his men. And all through their journey, he's just yelling insults at them. He's cursing them. He's throwing stones at them. And if you'll remember, David doesn't do anything about it. David at that point understands, perhaps I deserve this. And if I don't deserve this, then God will make it right. And so now the cursing stone thrower shows back up. <laughs> Except this time he hasn't come to curse David. He hasn't come with a stone in his hand. No, he comes and he falls down before the king and he begs for mercy. Verse 19, he says, Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Now, we, we don't know what Shimei's motives are here. We, we don't know how sincere he is. It could be that, that he's truly repentant and he's had a change of heart. It perhaps is more likely that he sees that the winds are blowing a different direction now and that king... David is now on the throne and 
You know, he says, you know, don't, don't remember what your servant did. Well, it's hard to forget the guy who threw a rock at your head. Don't let the king take it to heart. It's hard not to take it to heart when someone's hurling insult after insult after insult to you at the lowest point you've ever been at. Perhaps what Shimei is doing here isn't so much repentance. Perhaps he's just trying to politically maneuver himself into a position. Perhaps he's just trying to protect his life. Perhaps he realizes <laughs> that things aren't going to go well for him and he wants them to go better. And so it may be that he was just a snake. In fact, that, that description is exactly how many of the commentators I read this week, how they describe Shimei as a snake. One wrote this. Shimei has spoken before in chapter 16 and now as he speaks again, one forms the distinct impression that he is a snake, yet even snakes want to live. <laughs> and that's the picture we have, I think, here of Shimei. A snake, perhaps, likely. In fact, that's what Abishai seems to think. You'll remember back when Shimei was throwing stones and cursing David and his men, that Abishai turned to David and said, let me just go take his head off. Side note, that's what you should do with snakes. You don't have them as pets. Cut their heads off, throw them in the trash or your neighbor's yard. But you don't, you don't entertain a snake. And Abishai seems to get this. He, he looks at Shimei the first time and his first impression is the same as his second impression. He, he's a snake. Let me take off his head. He again says to David, let, let me just deal with him. Why? Because that's what should happen. That's what rightfully could happen. This was a man who had cursed the Lord's anointed. And the consequence for cursing the Lord's anointed is severe. And Shimei wants to give, or excuse me, Abishai wants to give Shimei what he deserves. But David says no. David here shows Shimei mercy. See, see, mercy is, is not getting what we deserve. That the only reason that you and I are here this morning is because God has been merciful to us. When you just consider, when you see the wickedness of the world around us, when that, that urge for justice wells up in your heart, when you see the sins of others and you say, well, they, they deserve this. They, they should get this. And then you pause and reflect on what you deserve and what I deserve. Scripture says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. We, we rightly deserve the judgment of God and the wrath of God. It is only by His mercy that we don't burn under that wrath in this very moment. And here, David shows Shimei mercy. The question is, why? It may have had something to do with a thousand of men from the tribe of Benjamin that were with Shimei here. <laughs> he doesn't show up alone. He shows up with a thousand. And again, it may be that consistent within this chapter that David, in trying to manipulate peace and come up with a strategy for peace, that he sees Shimei and he sees these thousand men from Benjamin with him and he thinks, well, well if I show him mercy, perhaps this way I can have peace with that tribe. We don't know his motive. But we know he makes an oath and he shows him mercy. And the next encounter he has then is with Mephibosheth. You'll remember 
Mephibosheth was the crippled son of Jonathan, David's dear friend. Mephibosheth was the one when David took the throne, he wanted to show kindness to the household of Saul. Mephibosheth was the one who was not deserving or entitled, but David goes to him in his crippled, abandoned state, and he restores to him the land that had once belonged to Saul. This was land now that was rightfully David's. David was sovereign over it. It was his as king. But he is gracious to Shimei, and he, he gives them this land. He gives them the servants of his father, Saul, the chief servant being Ziba. But did you remember, Ziba had come to David when David was fleeing Jerusalem. Ziba had said to David, Well, no, Mephibosheth turned on you now. I'm loyal to you. Here's some provisions. But no, he, he's loyal to Absalom. And so now we have Mephibosheth's side of the story. He shows up and his very appearance indicates that Ziba was lying. Because from the day that David left Jerusalem until now, He's unkept. He's unwashed. His beard, his hair, his nails have grown out. The, the picture we have of this poor, crippled Mephibosheth is, is one of mourning and of grief. He says to David, he, he's been this way. He couldn't bear the thought of even cleaning himself up until his king was back on the throne. And he says to David, clearly his servant Ziba had lied to David. He had manipulated David. That he had never taken his loyalty away from David. And so then David responds in a, a way that seems a bit surprising to us, might be odd to us. You may remember that when Ziba had originally come to David and told him this, what seems to be a lie about Mephibosheth, David, kind of in an impulsive, rash way, had said, okay, you can have all the land. All the land that I've given to Mephibosheth, I'm giving to you now. And now notice what he does. He looks to Mephibosheth and he says, Okay, this, this land that I once gave to you, and then I took from you and I gave to Zeba, now I'm going to take half of it from Zeba and I'm giving half of it to you. Y'all just divide it. It seems that David here isn't really sure who to believe. <laughs> We don't really get a, a gut response as to whether he's siding with one or with the other. But again, think of what may be motivating David here, this, this attempt to have peace. Because you may have noticed there earlier in the chapter, we read that Ziba was there at this moment. He, he had showed up as well to meet David, except he wasn't alone. He brought his family, his 15 sons. He brought his 20 servants. They probably had others with them. And so David here is looking at them. He's looking at Mephibosheth. He's trying to negotiate a way where he can play both sides and win them over so that they'll be at peace. Now, my response to this, perhaps your response is, well, that, that's not fair. I mean, Ziba lies about him, it seems, and then he gives Ziba the land. Now he takes only half of it from him and gives half to Mephibosheth. That, that's not fair. I'll remind you that this David wasn't, this land wasn't either of theirs to begin with. It was David's land. David was king. David was sovereign. David could do with that land whatever he wanted to do with that land. They, Mephibosheth didn't earn it, wasn't owed it. Ziba didn't earn it, wasn't owed it. It was David's to do with as David pleased. And if David wanted to give all to one or all to the other or half to each of them, that was his sovereign choice. Anything they received 
was grace. See, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And in this context and in this situation, David giving anything to Zeba or Mephibosheth was grace. Now, neither was deserving. And David here, it seems, was gracious. Even it was in the midst of just trying to scheme the peace. So how does this give us hope? Well, because, friend, when King Jesus, our King, returns, he offers us mercy and grace, but without questionable motives. There's no scheming involved in the mercy of God. There's no underlying motivations that perhaps aren't honorable or right in the grace that Jesus offers us. Now, when Jesus offers us grace and mercy, his motives are clear. He offers us grace that we might be saved. He offers us mercy that we might be saved. He offers us mercy because we rightfully deserve the condemnation of God. It is through the mercy of God that we don't burn under the wrath of God in the very moment that we sin. And He offers us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. Eternal life in Christ Jesus so that we might truly have this peace with God. Grace and mercy are integral to the gospel and salvation. And so we see both of those in Christ and we see both of those in the return of Jesus. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this... Is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. You are not here this morning. By your own doing. You are certainly. Not saved. By your own doing. You and I have nothing to boast about when it comes to our actions, our motives. We boast simply of this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God in His grace and mercy has saved us. Just, just dwell on that for a moment. You and I didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet God in His grace and mercy, he, He's done it. Now, for some of you, that's a stumbling block because you say, well, 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 why did God do this for me and not do it for somebody else? Why would God save one and not another if this is all of God's doing and He doesn't just save everybody? Well, that's not fair. And I'll remind you, as I remind myself, friend, that none of us deserve it. None of us are owed it. God in His richness of grace and mercy has bestowed salvation on us. If anything's not fair about the free offer of eternal life in Christ Jesus, it's the free offer of eternal life in Christ Jesus. If anything's not fair, it's that we're saved. God in His rich grace and mercy, He, he has done this work for us and then He does this work through us and our response to that should be one of awe and thankfulness. Not of one of, well, that, that's just not fair. Any more than it's not fair what David does with this land. 
Salvation wasn't ours to begin with. God has richly given it to us. And when Christ returns, when He makes all things new, we see His grace and His mercy and His return. Point three, we're reminded in this passage, we have hope from this passage because the returning King unites His people. And we skipped over 31 through 40, and for the sake of time, again, we're not going to spend time there. Essentially, what you have in that narrative is that there, there's an elderly man who has blessed David, and now David, on his return to Jerusalem, he, he blesses that man. But, but I do want us to just briefly look at the last couple of verses here, 41 through 43, because they remind us of this division in the kingdom. David sought peace, but he failed. And we see his failures here between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And one side's looking at the other. They're, they're saying, well, David's, David's showing you more favor than us. And this isn't fair. And this isn't right. And we're reminded that for all his political maneuvering, for all his offers of forgiveness to his enemies, the kingdom is still not at peace. We're reminded in these closing verses that the kingdom is not as united as David would hope that it would be. And yet we're reminded as we look at this failure to look ahead and to look to the day when Christ returns because he won't fail at uniting his people. When Jesus returns, he, he will do what so many of others have failed to do. He, he will bring unity to his people. And even now, before his return, that's what he calls us to. He calls us to be united. Not, not united for the sake of unity. Not united with, with vastly different interpretations or understandings of the Scripture. No, He calls us to be united around the very things that we read in God's Word. The truth of His Word. To be united around the message of the Gospel. And to deal with divisions as they might come up through the unity we have in the Gospel. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Does that describe the conversations you've had with others this morning? If we were to take account of your social media comments, do those comments represent walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Do we see humility, gentleness, patience? If we were to just take a survey of random things that you have said to those closest to you and to your family, would we notice the fruit of bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? We, we fail so often at these things, don't we? And yet our failure reminds us of the hope that we must have in Christ. Because Christ is the one who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who, who truly brings this unity. And we get a taste of it when we come to this table together. See, when, when we have members meetings on Sunday nights and we have food, we had this last Sunday night and we had chili and we had a big spread, we, we've got all these different tables in there. We don't have one big table. Not sure. Nick, maybe look into one big table for 100 people, but we don't have it. Tables of eight, you get about 10 at them. 
And, and you see how, you know, sometimes people, it's like, well, yeah, this, this person's sitting with this person. They don't normally hang out. But for the most part, what do we, we, we gather around. Well, here's my family. Here's my friends. Here's my Sunday school class. And we just kind of go where it's comfortable to us. But, but this table here, this, this is one table for us this morning. What well, we're here this morning united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not united this morning by our political affiliations. Some of you are Republicans, some of you are Democrats, some of you are independents. Some of you, I don't, there's like 40 different things. I don't even know what some of you are. You don't even know what some of you are. I don't know what I am. We're, we're divided among those things. We're, we're divided in our thoughts about world affairs. We're divided in our thoughts about what we should do about this or that. We're divided in our thoughts about how to educate our kids. We're divided in our thoughts about so many things. Some of you, you're wearing blue today for a reason. I'm not, but some of you are. Some of you, well, you're probably not wearing red today because we have these, these affiliations with sports teams and I'm this or I'm that. There's all these things that naturally divide and yet there's this unique opportunity we have in the body of Christ to come together and despite all these differences, we, we are united around the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And when we come to this table together, we're reminded that one day in a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to come around a table together again. United by the blood of Jesus. United by the gospel. That There are great divisions among churches today, even within churches today. And sometimes there, there are divisions that, that need to be there because... Well, we need to be divided if it's an issue of the fidelity of the gospel, the truth of God's word. But we should not be divided when that issue is settled. We should not be divided when we believe in the truth of the gospel and that gospel has been made clear. We should be united and this table reminds us of that. And it reminds us that this unity is not of our own doing. It's not some strategy that we came up with. <laughs> It's a work of the Spirit of God. And it reminds us, friends, of where our hope truly lies. And so maybe, maybe this week you've had some times of hopelessness. Maybe you've seen the news of someone suffering. I saw just last night the news of a friend of a friend of a friend. That their one and a half year old child died. There's nothing random about it, but everything about it seems random. That they died in their sleep. It's grievous. It's, it's heartbreaking. It leads us to hopelessness when we see things like that happen. You turn on the news, hopelessness. You look at the world around us, hopelessness. It's so vital for us as followers of Jesus to come to this table to be reminded that in the midst of these hopeless events around us, in the midst of what may be in your life and in mine, circumstances that seem hopeless. It's a reminder, and it's a much-needed reminder, that we still have hope because our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on what? Jesus' name. And we're reminded of that when we come to this table. And so I invite you now to respond to God's word by affirming this hope we have in Jesus as we come to the Lord's table together. And so I invite our deacons to come forward and as they come forward again,
We invite you to share in the Lord's table with us if you're a professing follower of Jesus. If you're not this morning, we would invite you to observe as we who have professed that faith 